Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a cult tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a cult tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the cult? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches, and they had, they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the Lord, word of the Lord. Well, it's good to be with you all today. Very good to be here. Um, we, uh, Aaron had said, mentioned that we moved here uh, about six and a half years ago, my wife and I did, from Virginia. Um, and we've, my wife grew up in Michigan uh, in Allen Park, just next door to Dearborn. Um, but uh, we've really enjoyed being here the last six and a half years. And I'll tell you, one of the things that uh, I would say was a bit of a surprise to us, um, but has just been a joy, has been the relationships that we've been able to build with other churches, particularly for me with, other, with pastors of other churches. Um, we're from the South and ministered in the South, and there's a lot more churches there, um, and sometimes it feels like the churches are in competition with one another, but I'll tell you here, it has just been a delight to get to know other churches and, um, and other pastors, and I will say your pastor is near the top of the list there for me. Um, I have just thoroughly enjoyed getting to know him uh, and, and his family. Um, we've had them over uh, to eat to our house and you know, just spent some time with them. And uh, you all have a real treasure here. Um, so be encouraged. And I think you probably know that. But just from an outside perspective, um, they are dynamite. And we think the world of them, there's just so much wisdom there and commitment to you as a church and to the Lord. And so... Um, I know they've been here about a year now, and you're just still kind of getting to know them, but, um, and we are too, but man, they, they are dynamite, and uh, I think the Lord's really going to use them and you all with them here uh, as a church in Dearborn. Um, so we're very thankful for you, thankful to be reaching out to this uh, metro area together with you, and, uh, and I'm just grateful to be here this afternoon to open God's Word uh, together. So you're already in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 11, if you're not. You can open up there, that's where we'll be, and uh, you'll need your Bible in front of you for sure. Um, let me pray one more time, and then we'll get to this text, okay? Father, we are so thankful to be able to look at your word this morning, or this afternoon. I just pray that you would uh, use our time together, increase our understanding of your scriptures, and increase our love for you um, when we learn better what you have done and who you are. So be with us now, it's in Christ's name. Entrances matter. Over the centuries, rulers and war heroes have made symbolic and dramatic entrances into cities. I mean, this is a thing that people do. In ancient Rome, the 
the uh, war heroes and, and the leaders would conquer a city and then they would re-enter the city in very dramatic fashion. And it was called a triumph. The general would be decked out in a crown and all purple and he would have a, a gold embroidered toga on and he would ride into the city and he would have his army with him and he would also have at least some of the captives that he had taken during his victory to show his power and his authority as the new ruler of that city. In the Middle Ages, rulers would enter the city that they were going to rule from with a whole series of festivals and of ceremonies, including a feast. The ruler was often carried into the city and greeted by the city's authorities, and they would pay homage to him as the one who was going to rule and reign from that city. I mean, I would even say in a small way, you can see the fact that entrances matter today in our culture. I mean, I don't know if any of you watched any football yesterday. I know I sure did and thoroughly enjoyed what happened. But teams enter into football stadiums not because they haven't been into the stadium. I mean, they're already out there practicing and getting ready for two hours. They're stretching, they're warming up, they're throwing the ball around, but then they leave the stadium and then they come back into the stadium in a very dramatic way. And they're trying to, to hype themselves up and hype the crowd up. I mean, you can go online and find lists of the best team entrances into their stadiums. This is a thing that people do. And if you really stop and think about it, none of these entrances really accomplish that much. The football teams have already been there, the, the war has already been won, but every entrance is dramatic and it's trying to communicate something to you without using words. The entrance itself and the way that the entrance happened is telling you something about the type of ruler or the type of authority, the type of king who is coming into the city. It sets the stage for what is about to happen. And that's exactly what we're going to find today as we look at this passage that was just read. Jesus' triumphal entry is what we call it into Jerusalem. This isn't the first time he's been in Jerusalem. He's already been in the city multiple times in his life, but this entrance into the city is unique for a number of reasons, and you and I want to pay attention to those reasons as we study this passage together. Now, I know you all have been studying the Gospel of Mark together, but I just want to remind you where we are in this gospel kind of big picture, okay? I love the gospel of Mark. I preached through it at my church when I first got there a few years ago. So if you're paying attention to this gospel, early on in the gospel, Jesus comes onto the scene and proclaims the kingdom of God. And he preaches about the kingdom and calls people to repent because the kingdom is at hand. And then he does all of these miracles that show us what the kingdom is like. In the kingdom, he has power over sickness and even over death. He has power over demonic authorities. He has authority over nature. The kingdom is a place where he has the ultimate authority. He's showing us what the kingdom is like. And as he does all of these things, he and the disciples end up traveling north to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And I think I have a little map, and it's probably hard to see. But 
If you can look right at the top there, this is Caesarea Philippi with that arrow. So the disciples travel all the way north up there with Jesus. And in chapter 8 of this gospel, Jesus asks them who they think that he is. And in that part of the gospel, Peter proclaims he thinks he is the Messiah. Well, after that proclamation, Jesus begins telling them, in fact, he tells them three times that he's going to travel to Jerusalem and he's going to be crucified by the authorities in Jerusalem. And the disciples have a lot of trouble with this, but he makes those proclamations on a journey. And so it's very interesting in the Gospel of Mark, he's actually on a physical journey with his disciples from Caesarea Philippi, heading south toward Jerusalem. And all the while that he's on this journey, he's teaching his disciples about what it means to follow him. And he's telling them, you need to take up your cross and follow me. And he's actually headed on a journey to Jerusalem to take up his cross. And so when you get to the end of chapter 10, you find Jesus and his disciples very, very close to Jerusalem. There's a little story at the end of chapter 10, which I assume you just looked at, where Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. And at the end of chapter at, at the end of chapter 10, he's in Jericho. Jericho is not that far from Jerusalem. And when you turn over to chapter 11, you can look there with me in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. He's close to his destination. He's close to Jerusalem. And he's going to enter into Jerusalem in dramatic fashion. It's going to make quite an entrance. And the entrance into Jerusalem is going to kick off the final week of his life. So everything in the rest of the Gospel of Mark is going to take place during the course of one week. But here's, here's kind of the point of all of this. As we look at this entrance today, it's going to teach us a lot more about what's going to happen and about who Jesus is. It's thick with symbolism. There's a lot that's going on here. And that's what we want to learn about from the way that he arrives into Jerusalem. So here's what we're going to see today. Two demonstrations of Jesus's identity as king. And these demonstrations call for our trust in him. So that's the goal. That's the payoff today. I want you to trust him more, to believe in him and who he is more, more confidence in him after today. And the way we get there is through these demonstrations of who he is, which we find in the way in which he enters Jerusalem. So the first one of these demonstrations you can see on the screen there is his intentional authority. So look with me at verse 1 again. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And we'll get to that second part there in just a minute here. So these two destinations, Bethphage and Bethany, are two little villages or settlements that are on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And they're not very far from Jerusalem. Mark here, notice, draws specific attention to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem by the way of the Mount of Olives. 
Now, in the Old Testament, in Jerusalem, the temple was the center of religious life. You guys, I think, would understand that if you've read the Old Testament much at all. And here's what's important about that. The glory of the Lord dwelt in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the Old Testament, okay? That's where God dwelt with his people in the Holy Holy of Holies, in the temple. But something significant happened in the book of Ezekiel. It took place both in the temple and the Mount of Olives that we need to understand as we come to this passage today. In the book of Ezekiel, Israel had been so sinful... And they had worshipped idols so badly and even brought those idols into the temple that God's glory departs from the temple in the book of Ezekiel. It's almost like a plane. It flies out of the temple and it comes to rest on the Mount of Olives. And then it departs from there. And so God's glory, His presence has left Israel and it's left Israel by way of the Mount of Olives. And so, there was this expectation among the Jews that when the Messiah came, that he would come by way of the Mount of Olives. That God would return to his city the same way he had left, by the Mount of Olives. And so Mark draws our attention to that fact here, that Jesus enters the city by the Mount of Olives. So they're approaching these little settlements, Bethany and Bethpage, by the Mount of Olives here, and Jesus gives some instructions to his disciples. Look at verses 2 and 3. The end of verse 1, it says, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the villages in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, untie it, and bring it. In verse 3, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Now you've probably heard this story, but just think about how odd this whole thing is. For starters, they're approaching Jerusalem for Passover week, right? That's why they're going to Jerusalem, and they would not have been the only ones on the road into the city. And I don't know if you get this image in your head of Jesus and his disciples sort of walking along by themselves, but there were thousands and tens of thousands of people that were going into Jerusalem for Passover week. There would have been huge crowds going with them. But everyone that goes into the city is supposed to be going into the city walking. Nobody rode an animal into Jerusalem for Passover week. But Jesus here sends his disciples out to get an animal. And what animal does he choose? Well, it says in the ESV, a colt. And when we hear that, we think of a horse. But it's probably best to understand this here as a donkey. That's the word that's actually used. And it's not accidental that Jesus chooses a donkey to ride into the city on. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 9, which I'm going to read to you, verse 9, and says, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of 
a donkey. Now for Jesus, it's not just about fulfilling this prophecy. That's not the only reason that he asks for this donkey. We tend to think of donkeys as a very lowly animal, but actually in the Old Testament, the donkey is what a king rode on. There's this uh, whole story uh, in, I believe it's, um, well, I don't have it written down here, but in the Old Testament, there are kings who choose specifically to ride in on a donkey. And so as Jesus is going into Jerusalem riding on an animal, in particular a donkey, that would have made a statement to people. People obviously would have noticed this. Notice here how he describes the donkey as well as an animal on which no one had ever sat. No one else was to ride on the king's animal. It was supposed to be meant only for him. And so that's important for Jesus as well. Notice how he obtains possession of this animal. Again, in verse 3, If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. One author described this as a royal requisition. The word he uses here is Lord. He calls himself the Lord here. He is the king. He's thinking of himself as the master and as the king of of this animal, certainly, and of everything else, too. Jesus is using this language here specifically and applying it to himself. And so he royally requests this animal and requisitions this animal to be used by him. So what happens? Look at verse 4. And they went out, or they went away, and found a colt or a donkey tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Verse 5, And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. It happens exactly as Jesus said it would happen. And so now he has possession of this animal, and he intends to ride it into the city. Now, all of that leads up to this point, okay? You have to understand here that Jesus is not tired And so he can't walk into the city. That's not what he's doing here. This is not haphazard. As you can see, this is well planned out. He's being intentional, and he's being intentionally authoritative in arranging all of this. He's putting it all together. He's God's Messiah. He's coming to the holy city, and he intends to present himself symbolically as the rightful king of Jerusalem. That's what he's doing here. This little story that begins the Passion Week, I think is helpful for us because Jesus does not stumble into his death. He's not caught off guard by this whole thing. You'll sometimes hear people say that Jesus was a good teacher or a good rabbi. I have a friend who says that Jesus is is a very good person. He did a lot of good things. He he helped people, poor people around Jerusalem. And, And that is true. He was a good person and he did help poor people. But that's not all there is to Jesus. And he didn't just stumble into a confrontation with the religious authorities and ultimately with Rome and got put to death. This story tells us something far different. 
He is authoritative, he is intentional, and he is in complete control of the circumstances that will take place over the next few days. He's in complete control. He's the one leading everything. He is not caught by surprise. So, think about what this means for you. When you doubt God's love for you, when you maybe at times are unsure of His affection for you, understand that God sent Jesus to become a man and to die for you, and that He came willingly to die for you. This is not accidental that this whole week that's coming up in the Gospel of Mark took place. He was in complete control and He gave up His life for you. Listen to this passage in John's Gospel. John 10, verses 14-18. through I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And that's exactly what we see here as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Complete control, complete authority. He's setting the narrative. He's the sovereign King. And as He's entering the city, He is presenting Himself as the Messiah, as the King. And apparently, the pilgrims who would have been walking along with Him began to understand how Jesus was portraying Himself. And that's what we see next here in our passage. Two demonstrations. The second one of these is His prophetic fulfillment in verses 7-11. through 11. So now that Jesus has the donkey, the scene continues to unfold, and nearly every action that you're going to see presents Jesus and proclaims Him as the King. Look at verse 7. And they brought the colt or the donkey to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. Now the donkey didn't have a saddle, but that's not what they're doing here. They're not just trying to make his ride a little more comfortable. In 2 Kings, Jehu is crowned king. And this is exactly what the crowds do. They throw their cloaks on the donkey for him to ride on. Verse 8 indicates to us that this is a royal procession. Look at verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. It's a royal procession. Now keep in mind the scene here. So understand big picture what we're looking at. Jesus and the disciples were in Jericho before this with crowds of people. This was the story that took place at the end of chapter 10. In fact, why don't you look back up there at verse 46. 
And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. So there's a whole crowd of people with them in Jericho. And while in Jericho, Jesus heals Bartimaeus. But keep in mind what Bartimaeus cries out about Jesus. So this is what these people are hearing as they're walking with Jesus toward Jerusalem for Passover week. Look at verses 47 and 48. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. What is, what is this guy saying? He's calling him the son of David. He's saying this guy is the heir of David. He is the rightful king. David was the greatest king that Israel had had, and God made a covenant with him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne forever. That the Messiah would come through his line. And so this blind man proclaims that Jesus is the son of David, and then Jesus heals this blind man. So all of these people are watching this blind man get healed after he's put in their minds that this is the Messiah, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. Now when Jesus heals this blind man, do you think the crowd just sort of melted away and left for the evening after they've watched a miracle like this? No way! In fact, what probably happened is the crowd got even bigger and bigger. And the the guy who has received his sight joins them. Look at verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on his way. And so now you've got the healed blind man who's with the crowd as a testimony to this guy's power and authority. And so, with all the Davidic references going around in their minds, shouted by this man who's just been given sight, Jesus is riding a donkey, looking like a king. It's a king's animal. He's approaching Jerusalem, which is the city of David. And with the Old Testament background of Zechariah, that the king is going to ride a donkey into the city, that's maybe ringing in people's ears. They're starting to think about that. With all of that going on, it's no wonder that the people begin to shout what they do in verses 9 and 10. Look, Mark 11, verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at this. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So what are the people saying here? Well, these are not just random phrases that they come up with. We read Psalm 118 earlier, and these are words that are pulled from Psalm 118. Now, this is really important for you to understand. I want you to turn over to Psalm 118. Hold your finger in Mark 11. Turn over to Psalm 118 because we need to understand a little bit about this psalm to grasp why they're using This, at this moment, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. I need to show you what Psalm 118 is all about. Okay, so, 
Remember how I told you at the beginning of our time together that entrances matter? That entrances are symbolic and that they matter? The Roman general comes into the city after winning a great victory, and what would happen as they would enter into that city? There would be a scene of celebration and of honor, and oftentimes there would be a song that would be sung about the victory that had just been won and about the king entering into the city. Psalm 118 is one of those songs for the Jews. This is a song that would have been sung when a Davidic king entered into Jerusalem after winning a great victory. One author called Psalm 118 a royal song of thanksgiving for military victory. So this is exactly what you would sing if you were following a general into a city after they'd won. Look at verses 10 through 13 of Psalm 118. All the nations surround me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was failing, but the Lord helped me. This is language that Israel would have understood of a Davidic king saying that he'd won a victory through the Lord's help. And as he approaches the city, he hears the songs of God's people praising God for his help. Look at verses 15 and 16 now in Psalm 118. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Now go down to verse 19. This is the king proclaiming this. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. So now the king is in this psalm is requesting entrance to the temple so that he can praise God for the victory that he's won. The temple is the ultimate goal that he's headed toward. So once he's inside the temple, then the crowd begins to join him in praising God. And you can see this in verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So then the priests in the temple would have responded by blessing the victorious king as he comes into the city. And this is verses 25 and 26, or verses, verse 26. And this is what the people pick up and chant as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is where the crowds pull their language from in Mark 11.9, and you can flip back over to Mark 11 at this point. So why do they chant these words? Well, they're watching this whole scene unfold. Jesus has been victorious over the powers of darkness and disease. They've watched this happen. They've watched him heal a blind man who's proclaimed him as the king, David's king. He's entering into the city on a donkey as a king would, and they are proclaiming these words because this fits the scene perfectly in their mind. It fits it so perfectly that look what they say in verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, 
David. What are they saying? They are filled with hope and expectation that Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem, and right then and there, he's going to establish Israel's reign. And he is going to expel the Romans from their land, and they are going to be free and under his authority and his dominion. I mean, that's what they're expecting here. And it's at this point that any other kingly procession would go into the city and that the leaders of the city would come out and meet them and that they would proclaim him as the rightful king and accompany him into the city. But what happens here? Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It is so anticlimactic, right? I mean, you've got all this buildup in this story. They're proclaiming him as the king who's coming into Jerusalem. And then you get, he enters, he looks around, and then he leaves again. What's going on here? Well, the leaders of the city are indifferent. And they're not just indifferent. Ultimately, they're going to be antagonistic toward Jesus and toward his kingly claims. And so what happens here with his entrance and then his immediate exit from the city is this sets the stage for the conflict that is ultimately going to lead to Jesus' death. And you'll see right away in this passage, next week I think you'll probably look at this, but there's conflict regarding the temple. And ultimately it's going to grow and grow and the conflict will be centered on the temple and ultimately Jesus is going to pronounce judgment on the temple and on the people who are currently keeping it and that is going to lead to his death. And these words here in Mark 11 or uh, verse 11 remind us of this from Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Jesus does come to his temple here and he's rejected by his people, which leads to his death. So, what does all this mean for us? It's a lot to take in, right? There's a lot in this story. But when I read this passage and I see Jesus intentionally doing all of this, showing his power and his authority as king, and then when I see him fulfilling these Old Testament expectations, because that's what we get here. He's intentionally fulfilling these Old Testament expectations because he knows who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the king. And I think this puts each of us into a position where we have to ask the question, who do I really think that Jesus is? Who is he? If he fulfills these expectations and these prophecies, which are written hundreds of years earlier, and if he actually healed people, and he actually cast out demons, and, and this is the key question, if he rose from the dead, then you and I have to reckon with his claims on our lives. You have to do something with him. If he's the authoritative king and he's the one who fulfills prophecy and we see that in this passage, then that means he's God. He's exactly who he proclaimed himself to be. 
And if he's God, if he's true God and true man, and he died on the cross and rose from the dead, then that reality is the most important thing about my life. And it's really not even close. I mean, what you do with Jesus of Nazareth is the most important thing that defines your life and, of course, your eternal destination. It just won't do to think of Jesus as a good moral teacher who had some good things to say. He's a bit of an enigma, kind of odd guy in some ways, but yeah, generally likable. It just won't do to think of him that way. He intentionally presents himself as the king who is God, fulfills God's promises, and if he's not really the Messiah, then he's a liar. And he's not a good moral teacher. But if he's really who he presents himself to be here, on the way into Jerusalem, leading to his death, then you and I have to humbly and carefully respond to his authority in our lives, to his call to take up our cross and follow him. We have to respond to the gospel, the good news that he is king, with repentance and faith. And I hope as you see this passage and see who he is afresh through the words of Scripture that you'll consider those realities and consider what that means for your life today, for this week, for the coming year. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this passage from the Gospel of Mark as it introduces us to the rest of the book, to the conflict that will take place, but it also keys us in on who you are. We can clearly see from this that you have demonstrated yourself to be the authoritative king and then the one who fulfills Old Testament expectations and prophecies. And so I pray for this church body that each one here would reckon with this reality of who you are. That we would think through afresh the claims that you as the king have on our lives and we would respond appropriately today and this week. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.